I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul of New York State. Lieutenant Governor Hochul joins me to discuss New York State's response to the coronavirus outbreak, and specifically the recovery and rebuilding process. We discuss the unique ways women have been impacted by COVID-19 and what can be done to help women recover. So please enjoy my conversation with Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Well, Kathy Hochul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. I enjoyed our conversation last time and look like uh, we're going to have another one. It's great. Yes, I should say welcome back. You know, the last time we spoke, of course, that was, of course, before the pandemic. And I know that you hit the ground running. You've been connecting with constituents and you've been working really hard to get the state, New York State, back on its feet. So I just want to know, you know, how are you doing? Thank you for asking. And I am doing fine. Uh, My normal life would have been going from my home in the western part of New York, Buffalo, catching a 3 a.m. or wake up call and getting on a flight at five to go to New York City and then maybe drive out to Long Island for a few hours and then up to our state capital and maybe, you know, cover the whole state and be back uh, by midnight. So to me personally, uh, it has been less travel and more zooming and zooming around the state is what I'm doing. And so I have been able to actually touch more constituencies, speak to more elected officials. I host meetings with businesses. I just did an MWBE conference statewide yesterday that I would not have been able to probably pull off with the other schedule I have. And so, you know, whether it's talking to chambers, women-owned businesses, faith-based community, uh, I'm out there just talking about what our objectives are in terms of uh, meeting the healthcare crisis. But now we're in the more desirable phase, which is talking about how we reopen in a smart way based on the metrics. So it is all consuming, but it is still very fascinating. And uh, we're going to come out of this uh, with much more knowledge, understanding, appreciation for people from all walks of life that were sort of quietly behind the scenes and never got the recognition they deserve. And I also think this gives us an opportunity as a state to really redefine ourselves and launch into the future and seize on some of the best practices that have emerged out of this crisis. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're doing well. And, you know, I know you've been working really hard to move the state into the next phase of the lockdown. You know, and honestly, I have to say, it does make me a bit nervous, given what's at stake, if states begin to reopen too soon. So what phase are you in right now, New York State? Depends on the corner of the state. Uh, Western New York upstate, it just much of it moved into phase two. My you know, Buffalo will be phase two early next week. Phase two opens up a lot of more of the businesses that people have been anxious to go to, hair salons and uh, retail, but with many limitations. I mean, there's no nails being done. There's no facials. It is just get a quick haircut with someone who's wearing literally a face shield and has had to test, at the, taken a test for COVID before they can even uh, serve you. So we have very tight restrictions to deal with just what you're talking about, the fear that people are going to have about, you know, emerging from this deep slumber. I mean, people have been doing everything they could to sacrifice, but to keep themselves and their families safe. And now they want to, they have to be able to trust us in government that we followed the doctors, we followed the experts, and then we, on the metrics that we feel it's safer to go out taking the same precautions we've been talking about for three months now. And so that's why we have the ability to open up slowly. We're not up, we're not talking about restaurants or movie theaters or larger gatherings, but just slowly opening up society and the economy. 
But nationally, you know, we, we just passed this really grim milestone. We have now over 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. You know, it's still very scary to me. But then on the other hand, lots of businesses, especially small businesses, they're, they're really hurting financially. And there seems to always be this push and pull, you know, where states are caught between which takes priority. Yes and no. I mean, our priority all throughout this has been public health. We wouldn't be talking about a reopening despite understanding deeply how extraordinarily painful this is for our small businesses and all the employers. And and I come out of a small business family and I know the suffering that goes on and you put your live stream into a little shop or a little uh, business and all of a sudden you don't know if you're gonna make it to the next month or not. So, so, but we've always said public health comes first. I mean, we can always bring back our economy. It'll be painful, tough, excruciating for our state revenues. We are states in a you know, about a $65 billion hole over the next couple of years already. So we're going to have to make some tough decisions, probably some cuts. But if people aren't alive, if we're not protecting public health, then what are we there for? So that is what has driven us. And we're only talking about reopening because we've seen the numbers decline really quite well now. I mean, uh, it took a long time to reach the plateau uh, and if you follow along, and New York State has a very transparent way to see what's going on at forward.ny.gov, you can literally see our hospitalization rate, and it's really going downhill. The number of people in ICUs is down, number of new cases is way down. And if we didn't see that, we wouldn't even be talking about reopening. You know, if we had a stronger, broader social safety nets here in the U.S., what would be ideal in terms of a reopening schedule, right? You know, and I'm thinking about New Zealand, you know, I know their economy is a lot smaller than ours, you know, but they had a really strict lockdown early on, you know, and their economy did suffer a bit, but they were able to really crush the curve really quickly. So I guess the question is, you know, how would we operate if our social safety nets were such that, you know, we didn't have to worry as much about the economy. You know, what would our reopening process look like? Well, probably operate very differently. And what troubles me the most is that women have been hit so hard by this. I mean, women, more women than men are filing for unemployment. They're they're not in the industries that are being called back the earliest, like construction and manufacturing. Those are very male-dominated fields. So women will be going without their paycheck an even longer period of time. And on the other hand, those who are working, are in the most at-risk jobs. I mean, they're in the ones. They're the ones that are out there on the front line. Seventy-eight uh, percent of healthcare workers, the nurses, and uh, people that are working in the cafeterias and the kitchens and 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 places where they're exposed. Those are all women, and so women are really, you know, really caught in a bad squeeze here with this pandemic. You're either unemployed, and if you're a single head of household, you're having trouble putting food on the table. Uh, hoping your unemployment checks come in, but a lot of them have been phenomenally delayed because of the uh, overwhelming the system. Or you're out there exposing yourself every day because you need that paycheck, you know, going and working in a kitchen, making someone's food that they can pick up curbside and possibly bringing back the virus to your house. So the economy is important and it'd be nice if people knew that they didn't have to risk themselves. We also have to keep some basic functions going. I mean, we need people to still go into the grocery stores and sell us our food and go into the pharmacies and make sure we have prescriptions. So those tend to be women, which is just a fascinating study and whether or not society properly recognizes and gives appreciation to and compensates women the way they should. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I know that's something we talked about before. And I know that's something that you've specifically been focused on. And even before the pandemic, I know that New York State had a lot of policies in place that were really, you know, targeted towards women, paid family leave, you know, guaranteed paid sick leave, childcare funding. So you really had some strong policies in place for women already. Do you think having those policies in place already will help women in your state do better following this? Absolutely. Better than they would have been, for sure, compared to other states that don't have a minimum wage that allows you to make more than $18,000 a year. You now can earn $32,000 if you're making the $15. But that's that's life-changing for a mom with a couple of kids. So yes, we have more safety nets in place. And to think about how important paid sick leave is, in the early part of this crisis, in other states, you had people showing up to work, healthcare workers or people who uh, or working in restaurants, cooking food, who could be sick, carrying the virus, showing some symptoms, but if they didn't show up, they didn't get a paycheck. Uh, in New York State, we changed that even before the virus to say that if it's a small business, you're entitled to at least five paid sick days a year. Larger businesses have to offer seven. So we've recognized for a while that state government has the ability to enact policies that can help alleviate some of the economic burden on families, particularly those headed by women. Yeah, but even as more states have data that says it's safer to begin to reopen, you know, when that begins to happen, the virus will still be here, you know, and many of those early businesses are ones where I think women are disproportionately represented on the front lines as essential workers. You know, states are opening up hair salons and restaurants. And of course, as more and more people slowly begin to go to work, there's going to be a huge demand for childcare. And all of those positions are disproportionately held by women. So the burden will fall squarely on their shoulders, on our shoulders. Oh, I know. It's never fair. <laughs> but you know, you know what's so tough about this now is we're starting to come out. I mean, a lot of women, either you're the frontline worker and you're out there exposing yourself and you're doing amazing work, keeping uh, everything going and allowing us to eat and take care of ourselves and being there for us, helping us in hospitals. Or if you've been home because you lost your job, now what happens when your job is available for you to go back to? But because of concern about the impact of this virus on children, there's no summer school, there's no summer camps, and a lot of childcare centers have shut down. So here's your choice. Well, I'm a mom. Do I leave my kids alone or I stay home from work? I mean, you don't have much choice there. That, that's, that's what's going to happen. Who's going to watch the children, particularly when those who are fortunate to have a, you know their own parents or grandparents who might have been part of their support system, they were the vulnerable ones early on. They were not even able to help watch the children of uh, first responders or essential workers. And that's going to be compounded when people start going back to the office or wherever their other employment is. And there's no one to watch the kids. A lot of people would normally be putting their kids in childcare or summer camps, and that's not going to be available to them. So what does a woman do? Stay home because there's no one to watch the kids? I mean, we have a real deeply ingrained childcare crisis in this country. And this virus has really exacerbated a lot of the rifts we have in society. You know, why why is the case that it all collapses because women can't have a, have childcare? They're the ones we need at the office now or in their jobs, but they don't have that support system. So it's just it's something to study and think about later, but we're living in the heat of this crisis right now. It's very real for people. You know, also not just women who are in essential worker positions, right? Just women generally who, you know, women who are working from home. There's this issue of unequal distribution of housework, which I don't know if we can quantify, but we kind of know that it's there. So when those women actually go back into the office, they're going to have a greater hit professionally than their male partners or just men generally, even if they don't have partner. Of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, here's the silver lining. 
to the extent that women, again, there's so many different jobs that women are in, it's hard to generalize. I mean, for a long time, when I was much younger, it was, you know, women were told to either go into nursing or you can be a teacher. Because most of those jobs would lend themselves to flexible hours so you can have your priority being a mom. Okay, that was my grandma's age, my mother's age. Uh, now women have burst into other professions, you know, careers, and, and have more opportunities available to them. But I'm wondering now with the with the success of, of working from home, telecommuting, does that create more flexibility who women who are in jobs where they can work remotely, that they're not essential frontline workers, uh, if they're lawyers or you know, someone who works in the financial services industry or, or other careers where they can now be able to build a system at home where, I mean, it sounds excruciatingly bad, but I did this when I was starting my legal career. I had two babies at home and I would work before the kids woke up. I'd work during nap time. And then when they went to bed at eight o'clock at night, I would work on legal contracts till one, two in the morning. It was exhausting, but I was able to get my work done because I just needed to show a product. And that might actually be a system that works better for women in some cases now that we've had this experiment because of the virus where people are telecommuting, bosses are more accustomed to it. Uh, they don't think that the employees are just you know home, you know, making cookies and painting their toenails and actually producing work here. So they, I think there's a higher level of trust. And they actually say, you know, it's hard on the employee because they're saying that they're actually more productive. They're not spending time commuting. If you live in the New York City area, uh, that's a certain percentage of your day just getting to your job. And so people can get that time back, use it for themselves, use it to take care of their kids part of it. Maybe the other part is to keep working. It all just means that women will never have free time, and that's just the reality of it. There's never going to be time for themselves. But as I speak to many women, uh, I said it's small consolation, but here's the deal. Your kids eventually get out of that needy age when they want their mom around all the time, when they hit about 13, 14. And that's, if you've got an infant, it seems like an eternity away. But at some point, you know, just by their age, you're going to have more independence. And, you know, just it all works out. I mean, this seems like you're never going to see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel when you have all these pressures on you. But we tend to live long enough that you can look back and say, wow, how did I ever get through that? I mean, at one time I had three kids, I was studying for two kids, uh, three jobs and I was studying for the bar exam. Um, it was insane. And so whenever I have stress now, I think, you know what, it'll never be as crazy as it was back when I pulled that off. So it's small consolation, but it's something we should think about and just kind of, kind of coach women through this phase because there's been enormous stress on them trying to manage kids learning from home. They're now the teacher in addition to the poor teachers trying to teach online. I mean, it's been a crazy time, but well, let's figure out what we can learn from that, what our strengths are and how society can start making it up to women and making their lives easier. Yeah. And, you know, this is why I really love these conversations with you, because your personal experiences are often reflected, I think, in, in your leadership. But I see that in many of your, you know, your policies that center women and families. And I personally always learn something from you. I mean, you know, I work at night, too. You know, I work, you know, from 10 to 1 often, you know, after my kids are asleep. You know, and the other day I had a conference call. I had my six-month-old in my lap. You know, she decided not to nap that day. But, you know, I've just heard so many stories since the pandemic started about the burden falling, you know, falling unequally on the shoulder of women. You're right. It falls on women primarily, you know, but if you, again, I don't know everybody's circumstance. I mean, some women are single heads of household. They have no choice. They are the only parent or the only adult. It has to fall on them. And, and I'm, God bless these women. They are superheroes. I was fortunate to have a husband that supported me. So 
he would walk in the door sometimes. And I'd, when I was elected official, I'd run off to my town board meetings. I'd come back. He'd have the kids in bed. Then I'd do my legal work late at night. So, uh, you know, and, and it's funny now because, uh, you know, our children are actually 30 and 32. So we did. That's why I can say we, you can survive that phase. Uh, it just takes a long time. Uh, but now my husband and I are trying to work from home together and he's in the back bedroom and our place isn't that big. He's in the back and I'm in the front and I'm trying not to overhear his conference call. He's trying not to overhear mine. <laughs> and uh, But you know what? If I'm around, I might make him lunch. If he's around, he'll make me lunch and, and he'll make dinner if I'm working late. Like last night, I didn't get home till real late. And so he had dinner ready, ready for me and he'll do the dishes and we split up. Everybody does their own laundry. So it's just, I feel fortunate, but I, and I wish women had that support because that has allowed me to really reach for the stars. I've never felt held back as much as I felt, you know, when I was home for you know, 15 years with my multiple jobs from home raising kids, he was as supportive as he could be as a spouse outside the home. So everybody has to do the best they can what life feels them. But my mother's favorite saying was, this too shall pass. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought of that recently with respect to this pandemic or back when I was a, a young mom just trying to figure out life and how to keep my head above water. And uh, you know, it does get you through. I always cringe when I hear people chide women for decisions that you know, maybe beyond their control. You know, everyone's home life is different and, you know, we're all trying to cope the best way we can. And there are some heroes out there, you know, men and women who support each other or spouses or partners who support each other. And, and if you're blessed enough in life to have someone like that, you know, there's no stopping you. And if you're not, then you just have to adapt. You just have to show your children your resiliency and they will learn from how hard you struggle and the lessons that you impart to them. At the end of the day, that's what you want to do. You want to be a role model that dealt with adversity, uh, with your chin up and pride and, and a positive attitude, and that your children will inherit that. And then they will become better citizens of the world and more adaptable to deal with life stresses. And that's why I feel like I've, my mother had to deal with, my mother had a hellacious childhood. It was horrible what she had to endure as a child. And I've always looked back and said, you know what? Uh, my mother didn't die when I was 16. My grandma didn't, wasn't abused in my home. And it was just a lot of things I didn't have to deal with, but I've always felt fortunate. And that's allowed me to see life very differently that uh, I have to give back to others because I've not been dealt the same things that even people in my own family had to deal with. Yeah. Hey, I've been thinking a lot about how we as a country can adequately address the ways in which women have been uniquely affected, you know, by this pandemic. And I was wondering if you thought that there was a case to be made for some sort of um, women's recovery package, you know, a recovery package targeted specifically at the ways in which women have been uniquely impacted. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> there should be. And I do think that one of the takeaways from this pandemic will be a recognition that people who have toiled in the shadows unrecognized are now considered essential. I mean, and, and I think we, the governor and I have spoke about this often. You don't talk about just so, okay, let's sing praises of our essential workers and, and bang. In New York, we everyone bangs their pots and pans at seven o'clock to uh, thank the healthcare workers. We do some crazy things here, but you know, it's just one of those traditions to show gratitude, but you have to compensate people, you know, pat them on the back, say thank you, but okay, you're, you know, you, here's your hazard pay for what you had to deal with. And women would benefit from that at the federal level because they're the ones primarily out there. Uh, they've been the ones who are the nurses and the, the people in the grocery stores and the pharmacists, and many of them are bus drivers in New York City and uh, driving the MTA trains. And so I think there could be compensation. It also should include all kinds of subsidies for childcare. And I, I've been chairing the governor's task force on childcare for the last two years. 
And I say to every business, you want to make yourself more competitive, show me what you've done to help with the child care burden on the women in your workforce. Especially if you don't have many women, you need to examine why. And if you're a large enough company, big enough space, tell me where your child care center is. Why don't you have an on-site child care center? I've said that to major tech companies. Come on, you've got room. You can get rid of some of these ping pong tables and put, it, <laughs> and put in a child care center. You'll get... You know, women who flock here and men who want to see their kids in the middle of the day, you know, the men who care about their families will want to work here as well. You can make that quality of life and they may need some federal subsidies as well to get something that off the ground. But we have to start investing in that if we want women to achieve their full economic potential and make sure that children have quality child care and are taken care of and, and that families can have their children close to them in the work site, and not worry about them so much. You know, we, we can change all this with, with federal government assistance, and it should it should occur. I also heard, and I just have to get more details on it, that the state of Hawaii has a, a post-pandemic feminist agenda. And I want to see what that's about in terms of uh, what they're doing to rethink their policies uh, with respect to how women were treated during this, what they had to do, and how we can better their lives going forward. So I, I'm intrigued by that. Many of the people I've spoken to about the pandemic and the coronavirus outbreak, I've asked them about, you know, what this moment could mean long term once we're on the other side. And, you know, as bad as it is, you know, many of them say that this could be a watershed moment in a lot of different areas. I mean, for instance, this could be the push that we need for broader social safety nets and, you know, a better healthcare system and you know, voting rights, for instance, right? What do you hope to see on the other side of this for New York State? I do hope that, you know, we are at a turning point in our nation where this has been a unique opportunity for us to come together. I saw more of it in the first couple of months People who lived in New York City went through this after 9-11, where there was that spirit of oneness, that we all went through something horrific together. And it, and it really bonded people in a powerful way that lasted for a while. We were strangers on the subway would actually make eye contact and say hello, or you know, people would, uh, you know, in the grocery store would connect with each other. And it was really transformative for you know, a community that's not quite like that by nature. Uh, so... I felt that early on where there was, we're in this together. And then I just don't want to see it become politicized and people torn apart. We're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is a political statement. And I just think that history can judge us in a very positive light of how we came through this horrific three months and now probably head into four or five months where we have to really continue to support each other, lift each other up. And the people that are out there in the, the lowest wage jobs who showed up every single day, regardless of their own health, and maybe they needed a paycheck, but my God, they knew that they were running into the heat of battle every day by just going up and showing up at their jobs. I hope that people look at them differently from now on, that that cashier that you appreciate today, that you'll still appreciate a year from now, and you know, make eye contact, thank people more, and just show more humanity, because this pandemic shows how precious life is. There's 100,000 people who in the early month of March thought they'd be here to see the summer come on and they're not with us. And life is very unexpected and we should learn from that to treasure each day, treasure our families, but also the strangers out there who just made it all happen for us and allowed us to thrive in this environment safely and come out at the other side. Yeah. And additionally, you know, I think one way to take care of our community is, you know, making sacrifices, making sacrifices by following the, you know, the conditions of the phases, you know, not going out unless it's absolutely essential. You know, you know, when the more people who actually go out are putting people, those essential workers at risk, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's not about 
It's not about you. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not about you. It's about all of us and and people who are willing to do the extraordinary work that they do. Last night I had the chance to speak to, I don't know how many, maybe a few hundred FDNY uh, Fire Department, New York EMT workers. And they're the ones who had to go out there and go into people's homes that were very sick with COVID-19, transport them, get them hooked up, get them safely to a hospital. I mean, they were exposed to that virus every second of the way. And nobody stayed home, nobody called in sick, they just went out and did it. And I just had a chance to thank them on behalf of our 19 million New Yorkers and many more who are alive today because of what they did. And, and I think that's just something that you know is seared into my memory coming out of this, uh, the incredible, as you mentioned, the sacrifice that, that people are willing to make. And if we in our own lives can't just sacrifice a little bit more and be smart about you know wearing a mask, even though you don't want to anymore, you're getting tired of it, you know, too bad. If that saves someone's life, my God, it was worth it. Well, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, thank you so much for talking to me again today. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing on behalf of all the women and, and your state. Thank you so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And uh, don't worry, you're, you're going to be a great mom and, uh, and your work is going well and you're going to be okay. All right. <laughs> Hang in there. This thank pass. you. I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> this too shall pass. Okay. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.